Uh, it is good to be with you today. I'm Joel Wayne, and I'm one of the pastors here. And just excited to see how God works today and how he moves. It really is good to have you here. Um, we're in the midst right now, today, we're starting a series called Because It Matters. You can see it on your worship guide that you have in front of you. Um, and you also see it there with the prayer guide. Uh, the prayer guide is something I want to address just very, very briefly. Um, this is something that we want you to utilize. Uh, we're trying to put as many resources in your hands as possible. And so what this is, if you open it up, there's a quick letter from me, but then on the next page, what you find, we want you to just fill out some things that you're praying for right now. This is for you. you. Some of you may treat this as your first journal that you've ever had, and you can write out some things that you're praying about. The reason I think it's important is when I started doing that years and years ago, I would start looking at stuff a few months later, a year later, I'd go back to it. And you know what I recognized? I saw the power of God answering prayers. And I began to praise him differently. In fact, it, it changed the way that I even prayed. And we know that there are a lot of questions for you about wor the world, about life. And so the next several pages is just scripture on all these different things, whether it be faith or marriage or identity. Uh, it doesn't matter really what it is. There's a lot of different things, stewardship or overcoming hardship and difficulty. There's passages of scripture right here for you to be able to go to as a resource. Um, why? Because a lot of times people just flip to the back of the Bible and they, they look up a word and they go to it, not understanding that maybe um, it's not in context of what God was intending in that moment, uh, contextually speaking. And so we want to be able to provide you with that, that resource. Today, as we jump into this series, we're looking, and, and this is a basis for everything. You need to know, so you're going to see me a couple of times today. I'm going to speak to you now for a moment. We're going to worship some more, and then I'm going to come back out. This is a basis for so much. This is a basis for the way that we need to be looking at life. It's called our, a biblical worldview. So what does it really mean to have a biblical worldview? And I've been researching, and I've been studying and looking at so many different things. One of the latest articles I found was actually from just a couple of months ago from Barna Research Group. Maybe you've heard of it before. In terms of this type of understanding, it's certainly the, the largest research firm out there in terms of looking at stats and numbers. Um, here's the thing. They determined that only 4%, 4% of Americans actually have a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview, 4%. Uh, for some of you, if you're trying to figure that out, that's four out of every 100 people. It's not a lot, is it? 4%. And yet, it's important because your, your worldview is the framework from which you view reality. You interpret everything that's happening around you based on your worldview, based on how you are seeing things in life. Now, you're going to learn that we all see different circumstances and we navigate different situations based on the worldview that we have, what we're looking through, the lens that we use. And we all have different lenses. Some, for some of us, um, we look at the world on a lens of brokenness, and maybe you can see that. And so we have so much hurt that we've had in our life that now we interpret everything else around us in the lens and view of that brokenness. It's something that we regularly do. And so we think because we've been hurt in a certain way, in a particular way, we think others have been hurt in a particular way, uh, and we start to see them in that lens. For some of us, we see everything through the lens of grief. And we go, okay, 
because of my hurt, because of the sadness that I have in my life, now we don't even see joy. We don't see what can still be and how God wants to continue to bless. We all have different lenses in which we see things. Know this, a biblical worldview, and you have this there for you, uh, go ahead and you can look at your notes, but a biblical worldview is thinking God's thoughts about the issues of life. A biblical worldview, now that doesn't just say a worldview, it says a biblical worldview is thinking God's thoughts about the issues of life, and it serves as a foundation for everything that we believe, everything that we say, and everything that we do. And we're going to be unpacking this thought today of understanding what that biblical worldview actually is. Do you have a biblical worldview? In fact, um, the way that this survey was conducted, what they did is they used about eight different questions for people who called themselves Christians, and they said, hey, listen, how do you answer the following? I want to share these with you because I think it's going to help you understand. Because here's one of the things that we've learned, is that um, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, often pretty much off the bat, people go, I have a biblical worldview. And so then you have to unpack that a little bit and really examine what does it mean to have a worldview. And so they determined that these eight questions help to evaluate whether or not you have a worldview. And these are the questions that they ask. And what I then did is uh, what you're going to have right there in your worship guide is we put scripture to it to let you know the importance of these questions Again, it's just another resource for you. It's another tool for you to be able to think about as you walk out of the place today. All right? So here are some questions you have to ask. Do you, do do absolute moral truths exist? There's a passage there for you, and that's an important question. Because if moral truths don't exist, if, if, if absolute moral truths, uh, truths don't exist, then what we have to examine is this. That means everything is subjective. That means everything. You can't correct anything. And then basically, your definition of truth is determined by an emotion or a feeling that you're having. In fact, some of us end up developing what we think is a moral compass based on what we don't think will hurt other people's feelings. Is that we, we do it all the time, right? I mean, one of my kids may uh, misbehave. They don't misbehave anymore, of course. But maybe years ago, they, they would misbehave, and my wife would tell me something that they, were, they had done, and I'm like, oh, I'm just going to, in the south, we would say, I'm going to blister their hide, right? Um, you ever say that in the north? I wouldn't either. Okay, so... We, we would say something like that. I would be like, oh, I'm going to get on to them. I can't believe it. And then they would, come, they would come up to me, especially if it was one of my girls, and I would see a tear in their eye, and I'd be like, it's okay. Anybody done that before? You're softies. And all of a sudden, I see the tears, right? And all of a sudden, because I see those tears, I, I shift the way that I think I need to react, whether it be right or wrong. But that emotion, that feeling, changes the way I respond to them. That's what we're doing with our worldviews today. And so if you're not grounded in a biblical worldview, you're going to be James chapter 2, where it says you're going to be blown and tossed by the wind, back and forth, back and forth. And that means tomorrow your view is going to be different than it is today, much less than in a week, in a month, in a year. And it's going to constantly shift. And yet God is never... Ever changing. 
That's why biblical worldview matters so much. So the very first question they come and ask, they go, do absolute moral truths exist? And the answer is yes. Second question they ask, is absolute truth defined by the Bible? Because then if you do agree that moral truths exist, absolute moral truths, certain things are right and wrong. Certain things are right and wrong. That means absolute moral truths exist. And then you have to ask the question of, then what determines that? So is it defined by the Bible? And if it's not defined by the Bible, and yet you agree that there has to be some type of absolute moral truth, is walking up to someone and shooting them and killing them, is that wrong? Yes or no? That's wrong. Okay, well then where do you get that from? And if it's not the Bible, something else has to define that for you. And if it's society, we all know that society changes, so that means your morality is changing. You're following me on this, yes? Another question he asks is, did Jesus Christ live a sinless life? Now, uh, you know where you're sitting today, and I have to tell you, and I say it all the time, you cannot define morality apart from Jesus. Because then it truly is subjective. And so it's important to recognize that Jesus Christ did live a sinless life. Another question they ask is, is God the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe? Does he still rule it today? Another question they ask is, is salvation a gift from God that cannot be earned? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 continues with that idea, that thinking, that thought process. It is a gift from God for all people who believe And I know that, guys, as soon as I speak these types of words, what a lot of people go is, well, that's kind of of hate speech. This isn't hate speech. You know what it is? It's love speech. That's what it is. It's saying it doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done in life. Jesus Christ loves you. God loves you so much that he gave his son because something had to pay a penalty for your brokenness, for your sin, and Christ did that for you. That type of sacrifice is only defined by the word love. Is Satan real? That was another question they asked. Is Satan real? Does a a Christian have a responsibility to share his or her faith in Christ with other people? It's a great commission, by the way. Matthew chapter 28, you can go there and you can find that. Matthew is the first gospel, the book uh, in the New Testament, right there. and, And he just says, here's a great commission. Go into all the world. Tell people, baptize them in the name of Jesus Christ, of his love, his passion, he's calling it out. And then lastly, they say, is the Bible accurate in all of its teachings? And so some of you, here's what's happened in the world today. This is why it's so important to talk about a biblical worldview, is that now what we're doing Right, And we all do it even as individuals. So I'm not going to even speak to it on a societal level. What I'm going to do is I'm going to speak to it on an individual level and tell you this. We always want to listen or to hear something else through the lens of what we want to be truth that affirms who we already are rather than allowing something to speak and actually shift and change the way that we currently are thinking. That's what we end up doing. As individuals, yes, as a society, 
But we need to first examine, do we have a biblical world view? And this is important. It is so important because what's happening, if it's determined by your emotions and your feelings or somebody else's feelings, it is completely subjective and it will change from day to day. And the God that I serve does not change. The God that I serve has presented and given his truth for us to live by. It is not hate-oriented. It is love-oriented. It is grace-oriented. It is forgiveness-oriented. And for me to recognize that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And then to say that, but yet I'm not going to live by what he has instructed. Well, that means I would truly be a hypocrite. Now, here's the thing about these questions. Of the the Christians that they interviewed, only 9% agreed with all of these questions. 9%. of the Christians that they interviewed. And one of the primary reasons why it was such a low number is because they could not wrap the idea of having to change their emotions in order to embrace a truth. And so knowing that only 9% of born-again believers answered yes, we have to know that this worldview, whatever worldview you carry, impacts everything else in your life. It, it impacts your response to politics, to philosophy, to, to economics, to politics, to, to everything that's out there, to self-expression. And yet what's happening so often in today's world is that our worldview is getting diluted. All right? We're getting, it's getting diluted. I know recently um, we splurged and we bought our kids. We went to Costco. We bought the industrial size lemonade, right? Um, I forget the name brand of it. Um, I don't want to help them sell more of it anyway. Um, and it's just a giant bucket of sugar with a little bit of flavoring, right? It's a brilliant thing to buy for kids and give it to them at 8 o'clock at night. Um, and so here we are, and I tasted it, and they just they didn't get it right. I mean, like it was just watery yuck that they gave to me to drink. And so I'm the one going to the canister and dumping a lot more in my water. Well, what we've done is we've added a whole lot of dilution to our own understanding of a biblical worldview. We've diluted it, and the potency of it is not the same anymore. And you're going, well, how does that happen? Well, you know what? I think one of the ways we dilute it is by what we see, what we watch, TV, whether it be film, uh, movies, uh, the, the stuff we listen to with music, the things that we're reading, where we choose to get our information from, um, books that we read. I'm amazed with books. I'm amazed that so many of us can pick up a book, know nothing about the author, and we automatically think that what we're reading is truth. You absolutely you know nothing about them. And we pick up a book and go, oh, that's the most brilliant thing I've ever read. Of course, that's coming from a guy who wrote a book, so I should probably just not write another book. But it's silly, isn't it? 
We, we don't even process how our worldview is being diluted today. I'll give you an example. First Thessalonians chapter 4 talks about not giving in to sexual immorality. I think the majority of us will go, sexual immorality is bad. Would we agree with that? Yes or no? All right. And yet we dilute that by what we're putting into our minds and our hearts, right? The more we see of it, the more we dilute our understanding of right and wrong. And it does matter. Because what happens is that Colossians chapter 2 verse 8 says the following. It says that then by the world that we're taken captive. We're literally, we're taken captive. Again, this is Colossians 2, 8. We're taken captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. And so often our own minds, our own hearts, if we're really evaluating, looking in the mirror, who we are, so many of our hearts and our minds have been taken captive through human thinking, human tradition, rather than on what Christ desires for us. What is your worldview? Do you have a biblical worldview? Because it's our actions, it's our decisions that truly reveal what we believe. Right? That's how it always works. It's our, it's our actions, our decisions that we make that truly reveal what we believe and whether or not you have a biblical world view. And I'm hoping God will just open our minds and our hearts a little bit to that. I'm certain I'm, I've already offended some. Here's a wonderful thing about this type of series is I, I told some of the leaders before, um, the next three months, I am convinced that I will offend every one of you. Yay for me. But I promise you, I will preach Scripture, the Word of God, and nothing else. Do you have a biblical worldview? And if you don't, will you at least consider what it would be to change? Romans 12, verse 2. Here at Chapel Point, we always say that we're transformed followers of Jesus, passionately responding to God, rooted in prayer in the Bible, and equipping disciples. And you're going, that's, all, that's a mouthful. Well, yes, but we, we're not willing to sacrifice any of it. And in Romans 12, verse 2, it tells us to be transformed. To be transformed. And we're transformed by no longer conforming to the pattern of this world, right? We're transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so even now, before we jump into the rest of worship, will you allow, will you invite God to transform your thinking? Will you allow God to transform not only your thinking, but your emotions and your feelings? God has given us so much. Something that you'll hear about on a regular basis here. We do recognize. We're a simple plan of salvation, right? It's God loved us so much. He gave his son 
to die for every single person who recognizes that they are broken and a sinner, and we get to live in that joy of knowing he's paid the penalty of our death, and we get to respond to that for the rest of our life, giving him praise and worship and glory. And when things are difficult, we will rely on him for comfort. And when we feel weak, we will rely on him for strength. And that's something that we get to do. Will you allow God to jump into your heart today? I fully understand that today I'm just putting out a whole lot of information. And I'm not apologetic for it at all. Because if you could just get some of this thinking, even what I was stating before, but also right now, I want, I want to give you another way of thinking biblically about a worldview. So please uh, get the, the sermon notes that you have there and get ready to write some stuff down. Um, a lot more is going to be shared that even than what you have in front of you. Uh, and it's going to help us be able to digest and to truly comprehend all that God is wanting for us as we move forward. Um, if you're a new believer, uh, I would tell you, and if you've never done this before, I would tell you to go do this as well. People are like, well, where do I start reading the Bible? And I've told you, many of you, this before, but I would tell everybody to start with Genesis chapter 1 through 11 and then also the Gospel of John. It's just the go-to to me. Um, and then I would tell you, after you read it once, I would tell you to read it again. And then after that time, I would then probably tell you to read it again. Genesis chapter 1 through 11, and then the Gospel of John. If you've not done that, I'm inviting you to go do that this week. It's not that hard. Gospel of John is only 21 chapters. Looking at starting a series on John possibly in January. Uh, it's just such an amazing book to be able to look at and to be able to examine. But here's what we learn from Genesis chapter 1 through 11 primarily that is so crucial for us. And there are four key things. And when you have a biblical worldview, you've got to see things in this light. Are you ready? First of all, you have to understand creation. And I even wrote on your sermon notes some of the basic ways of translating all of this that I could think of, okay? And I'm talking with other pastors. I'm like, okay, as simple as possible, what is this kind of thing? Um, creation, here's creation. God made everything. He made all things good, and he made us in his image. That's primarily Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. That's really what it's talking about. God is creator. He made us in his image, and he made all things good. Now, then what we find is that's the first of four things you've got to understand. Then what we find is we have this thing called the fall. All right? So you go creation, and then you go fall. And what you understand is that we are sinful. We are broken. It's right there for you. Um, you can go ahead and throw it up on the screen um, and so that they can see that. We need to understand that you go creation, fall. We're broken. Our sin ruins our relationship with God. What we find, if you don't already know, you've got the garden, right? And, and then you have this guy by the name of Adam, and then you have Eve. God even saw that his loneliness wasn't good, took a rib, made woman, man and woman together. Adam looks and Eve looks at this tree. I say both of them together because I think they both played a role. People give the woman the hard time. We're both messed up, all right? I'm surprised I didn't get an amen from some women, um, so all of a sudden we look at this and we recognize that God gave them so many wonderful, beautiful things. But what they did is they looked at the tree and they said, that's the one thing we can't have. And so they were tempted by Satan to come and take an apple from that tree and to partake of it. They did. And what we recognize is sin, brokenness 
enters the picture. So you need to know this. Uh, often what people do is they se- celebrate um, what Jesus Christ has done in giving up a son for eternal life. But you can't fully comprehend that with first recognizing that you are a sinner, that you're broken. There's no joy in going, wow, God saved me, if there's nothing to save you from. And so that means you have creation, and then you have the fall. Creation was broken at that point. And it's what's wrong with the world today. And there's hardship and there's difficulty. But yet God still promises to be there with us and to comfort us. And he doesn't say things won't get hard. He doesn't say that things won't be difficult. But he promises to be there with us and to walk with us and to, to take that journey with us. Third, what you have is this thing called redemption. You see that Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You also see it in other chapters to follow. But what you have is redemption. It's the solution. It's what fixes our brokenness. It's what fixes our brokenness. Jesus died for us and our brokenness for all who place faith in him. Really what was happening, what you see over and over and over again in the Old Testament is God says, obey my commands and you'll be good to go. They keep breaking his commands, doing what they want to do over and over, and so then he punishes them. He even says often, hey, if you don't obey my commands, I'm going to punish you. They don't care. They disobey him. God does what he says he's going to do, and then the people finally after time, they come back to God, and there's a cycle of it for thousands of years, right? And then God says, well, then finally, I'm going to give you my son, Jesus, to serve as the perfect lamb of God so that you might know what it is to have eternal life. And so this shows us the redemption, the solution actually is done for us through Jesus Christ. And then lastly, you have this thing called restoration. It's one of the things that overwhelms me about God and about Jesus that is so good is that we know through restoration that there is hope and purpose in Jesus. We also understand that here's what he does. He doesn't just throw out the old, right? That's not what he does. He restores the broken. So one of the reasons I get so enthusiastic about Jesus is because I recognize my brokenness, and I recognize that through faith in Jesus Christ, he desires to restore me. That overwhelms me. I can't believe he would do that for me. And so I celebrate him. I praise him. I worship him. I serve him. I am his slave. Do you see why understanding that you're broken is so important to understanding who Jesus is? So when I said, I've, I, I, I often say this as well, one of the greatest things that we've stopped teaching our children is the need for confession. Because the, the, the need for confession, what that does is it teaches us that we are broken. And you know what? That's okay if you acknowledge Jesus because he wants to restore you. Now I say that to let you know this. If you, if you have a hard time saying you, you're wrong about something, If you have difficulty in saying, I, 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 wasn't, I was wrong about this, I messed up, then we've got, a, we've got a pride issue we need to work on. We, there's a pride issue there. We've got we to gotta better examine that. But restoration also lets us know that forgiveness is real. Forgiveness is real. 
So biblically speaking, I needed to share that with you. There's no way I could leave today without sharing that aspect of it as well. Genesis chapter 1 through 11. That we have creation, but then we have the fall. And, but then we do have redemption. And then there's restoration to come, understanding what Christ has done for us. And there's beauty in that. And the reason I'm trying to give it to you as simply as possible, I want you to take it, share it with people. Let them see this. Have a way to articulate why you claim to be a believer in Jesus. One of the ways that we're going to be able to walk through this series as well is we're going we're gonna to look at Isaiah chapter 55. In fact, well, you're going to see different resources in the next several weeks that we're going to be giving you on Isaiah 59, 8, 9. We're going to be asking for you to memorize it as a church together. And so we'll often be throwing it on the screen. We're going to give you other things um, to be able to go. Um, we're going to rent airplanes and fly them all over Grand Rapids. Um, not really, but um, whatever it takes because we want you to understand this passage. Because when, you, when it comes down to a biblical worldview, world we need to examine Scripture such as this. But would you please do me a favor? Let's stand back up together. We're going to read the Word of God together. Isaiah chapter 59. 8 and 9. Let's call it out. Don't be timid in calling out the Word of God. If we could go ahead and have it come up on the screen, that would be great. Let's read this together. Here we go. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. There it is. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts Amen. You may be seated. This is a passage, there are certain passages that I think we've done a brilliant job misusing. Right? Um, I don't, well, I already told you, I might as well just go ahead and offend all of you right now. Get it out of the way. Um, For I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Um, What that is about... (laughs) It's about you being able to surrender every single fiber of your body in order to be a slave of Jesus, not to better self, but to exalt his name. That's one example. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 is another example. What we do is some of us, we just go, well, the hard things are happening, and so as a result of that, I just need to go, well, God's ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Everything else, I just got to just go with it. Now, the way we take that out, and I'm not saying that's completely incorrect, but you got to tell the whole story. What we recognize here is even in the beginning of this chapter, in Isaiah chapter 55, what he's doing is he's speaking to the hurting, he's speaking to the sinful, and he's speaking to the broken, and he's letting them know, hey, listen, I know things are hard, but you need to also understand, but yes, I do have higher thinking than you do, I do have higher thoughts than you do, but he's not saying it in a way that they should just go, oh, well, whatever goes then, because he also lets us know that we can know God. Scripture's very clear that we can be in a relationship with God. That we can be a part of his plans. It tells us, I'm going to give you just a couple of examples. Ephesians 1.17, it 
It says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. What I don't want us to do is think that Isaiah 55, his ways are higher than my ways, his thoughts are greater than my thoughts, means that we can't know God. He desires for us to be with him and to know him and to have a greater understanding of him. Another passage would be 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We too can have the mind of Christ. It's Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so we too can have the mind of Christ to know what God is possibly desiring. Can it be as great? It cannot be. What I'm not saying is that we can be God. I'm not saying that. That's one of the things about so many of the seven major world religions, more than half of them believe that you think you can become a God. You cannot become God. You cannot. But yet, through knowing his word, can we not know what he desires? Can we, can we not know that, you know what, this is our compass now, biblical worldview of knowing right and wrong. And so here's what this is saying is no. God doesn't do things our way, but yes, we can know God. And we need to have the humility. Verse 6 tells us that we need to have the humility to recognize that we need to better understand and know God. It tells us, it says, let the wicked, let the wicked turn from, let the wicked forsake his way. So if you're the sinner, if you're the broken, turn from your ways and desire to know the ways of God and to live those out. It says, let him return to the Lord that, that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Also, this is, um, it, it reminds me so much of Genesis chapter 1 through 11. What I see here in Isaiah 55 is, is a reminder of Genesis 1 through 11, and it reminds us, um, even in verse 6, it's a passage also, when you just say, for his ways are greater, his thoughts are greater, we don't recognize how much compassion we see of God in here. He says, for I will have compassion on them, the broken and the weary. He's talking about redemption. He, he is wanting to redeem. God redeems. He is merciful Yes, his ways are greater, he is God, and we are not. But don't miss the beauty of this passage. It says that while we are not gracious by nature, he is. I'm so glad I serve a God of mercy and of forgiveness. That changes my worldview. It changes the way I respond when people do me wrong, right? It changes the way I respond to that because I know what I've done wrong, right? Brokenness. And yet God desires to restore me. It changes the way I process that. We also learned that restoration in this passage, is when you look at Isaiah 55, it's not even just 8 and 9 that we read, but the entire passage. Something else that we learn in Isaiah 55 is that restoration and help, you know what? It comes from God. Well, doesn't that sound like Genesis 1 through 11? Restoration and, and help, it comes from God. He speaks very clearly to it. Genesis 1 through 11. And we can celebrate that. We can live in the freedom that comes with this. In fact, as I'm looking so much at um, this passage, 
there's victory to be claimed because of what it is to trust that God is greater. And we have restoration, we have hope, we have compassion, we have mercy, we have forgiveness. But here's what we need to understand is that the thoughts and the ways of God, there is a chasm between our own thoughts and his thoughts that are just, is just massive. Um, I was speaking to a friend of mine yesterday. He may be in this service right now. I'm not going to use your name. I didn't ask for permission. But he was like, hey, when I was in high school and stuff, I was, I, he ran track. And he ran the half mile. And I said, how fast did you run that in? He was like, oh, just like just over two minutes, like 203, 204. I'm like, holy cow, I would need a car. And I'm like, didn't you run college? He goes, no. Like when I went to a local college, like that was slow. Like in track and field, a second or two is a big difference, right? It gives totally different meaning to like eat my dust. And like all of a sudden, he's, he's, just, I mean, he's like, that's not all that fast. And I mean, I think it's crazy fast. And he says, like, but just a little bit of a difference makes a big impact. And, and here sometimes I think we think about God and we go, well, he might be a little bit greater than we are. But we don't understand the fullness of how great the difference is between the creator and the created who is now sinful and broken. We don't understand the chasm that is between the two. Like if you, just, if you think you're pretty good and then yet God's just a little bit better, there's probably not a lot that you're going to do about it. But if you go, man, God is creator and he is, the chasm is so great, then you're running to change your life, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12 too. You're chasing that then. If you understand the enormity of who God really is, why? Because God, here's what you have to understand, is that God did for you only what he could do. Friends, um, you can't save yourself. I don't know how to say it any more clearly. You can't be cool enough. You can't be nice enough. You can't give enough money. Only God could restore you through the giving of his son. And you're going, okay, Joel, you've already said that, I know, but here, guys, the only way you can have a biblical worldview is to first comprehend what God had to do for you through his son, Jesus Christ. It's the only way. It is absolutely the only way. And so then, here's what, here's what happens, guys. I'm trying to help us to understand that some of us, we're still looking at our entire life through this lens of brokenness, right? And so we see everything through hurt. Some of us, it's, it's the grief of brokenness, and we're not willing to move beyond the brokenness. And so no matter what someone says or what someone does, it's through that lens. And so there's hard, it's hard to find any kind of joy and you become manipulative and all these different things. For some of us, we, look, we live in, in the sin that we have. We know we're very aware that we're sinners and that we're, that we're messed up. And so as a result, we live in it. And we won't allow ourselves to step out of it knowing that God forgives 
and God is merciful. So many people today are living, looking at everything through the lens of their sin. And what I'm telling you, that's not God's desire. You acknowledge that you're sinful, but then you also acknowledge that you can be restored through Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, joy fills your life. Changes everything. Some of you see everything through the lens of your job. Because you're all about furthering your career and making more money no matter what. Just to remind you, I've sat in many hospital rooms. I've never heard from anybody, I wish I would have made more money. Never heard it yet. Some of you are looking at everything through the lens of culture. And you allow the culture around you to define how you are going to define everything else. And if it's emotional, then you play on those emotions, right? Some of you are looking through the lens of TV, and you allow that to define. Some of you are allowing your friends to be what determines your view. What's everybody else saying? <laughs> and then I'm just going to go along with that. I would like to invite you today, every one of you, to start looking through the lens of hope. Because the lens of hope is also known as Jesus Christ. Um, good friend of mine, good friend of ours, um, and everybody's already praying for him, so I feel the freedom to share this. Uh, Sandy Tetro, a wonderful lady in the church, uh, this last week she had a pretty severe stroke. She's in the hospital right now. And uh, a faithful servant of our kids. I mean, just for years and years and years, since well before I ever got here. And uh, last night, um, Bob called me up on the phone, and we're crying together and we're praying together. That's, of course, her husband. And you know what? He starts calling out to me. He goes, well, Pastor, I'm reminded of Isaiah 55. I know his ways are higher. And all of a sudden, I'm like, don't preach my sermon tomorrow. <laughs> he giggles a little bit. You know, he laughs. And um, Isaiah 55, his ways being higher and his thoughts being higher, it allows me to see life with so much better clarity. It allows me to see life through hope. through forgiveness and through mercy. You can come and ask me, Joel, how have you been wronged in life? It's going to be hard for me to tell you how I've been wronged in life because I know how my life has been righted, and that's through the blood of Jesus. And so no longer am I defined by how I've been wronged or the things I've done wrong or my sin. I'm not defined by my brokenness. I'm defined by the hope of Jesus Christ. It changes everything. And so you can spit on me and you can throw things at me or you can say what you want about me, but my assurance comes in Jesus. There's a joy. Like, don't you get that? And I'm praying that you can start seeing life through that lens of biblical worldview of, yes, there's creation and fall and redemption, but there's restoration. 
There is restoration for every single one of you. Is that where we will live? Is that what we will choose to live in? That is a biblical worldview. Jesus saw death. He jumped in on it, and he annihilated it. And you're going, okay, is that where you are? Do you, have you said, Jesus, I'm all in? Have you said, Jesus, I'm all in? And so what I want to do right now is, um, knowing that God just offers this extraordinary life of sanctification, I want to just pray for us, for hearts to be renewed and restored and transformed, recognizing what really comes in his name. And then we're going to do what we do. We're going to worship. And so let's pray together right now. God, I come before you and I give you so much thanks that we can look at life through the lens of hope, through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of the Word of God. And some of these friends here today I'm not naive, God. I, I, probably, I can't call them all brothers and sisters unless they all have truly professed faith in you. But I'm hoping that they're all brothers and sisters, and I'm hoping that those who are not brothers and sisters become brothers and sisters in Christ, that we will be bound together in our belief and in our faith and our understanding that you gave your only begotten Son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not die, shall not live in brokenness, but we should know hope and eternal life, that we should know restoration and redemption, that we should know forgiveness and mercy, that we know the perfecter of life. And some of us, um, we're probably struggling because we know that if we truly adopt a biblical worldview, we can't continue to live the way we currently are living. Some of us know, God, that if we adopt a biblical worldview, that if we say, Jesus, flood my life, that we cannot stay the same. And it's scary, God, I get that. But in the midst of their fear, I pray that you give them courage. in the midst of their desperation, give them hope. May they right now, may you step into their life and let them know that there is more in the name of Jesus. And they're scared of what friends may say and they're scared of what family may say if they walk up and go, you know what? I truly now believe in who Jesus Christ is and he has flooded my heart and he has given me hope. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. God, I'm praying. Holy Spirit, come. Have your way. Amen. May we stand together as we acknowledge that sometimes even though we may feel alone, even though we may feel 
um, just completely isolated. Our God is present and we can rejoice in him. Do you live in the hope of Jesus Christ? Do you live in the hope of Jesus Christ? I'm inviting you to step deeper in. It's a wonderful swim.